Well, without further ado, let's look at Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. The title for the message is simply this, Jesus is a perfect Savior. And as Christians, as believers, you could probably say, well, duh, we know this. Well, I believe it's Jude that said, there's just times when it's appropriate to remind us all of things we've known for a very long time. Because sometimes as Christians, if you've been a Christian for years especially, you can sort of get numb to the basics. So if I say the phrase, Jesus is a perfect Savior, again, probably veteran Christians are like, well, of course, of course we know that. That's why I believe in him and I believe in the salvation he brings. But think about that for a moment. And what I want to get at this morning is more directly this question. But what makes him a perfect Savior? Why can we call him a perfect Savior? What is it that he does that brings a perfect salvation? There's been other religions throughout history. The founder of Buddhism, I won't even begin to try to pronounce his name. But he taught a certain way of of reaching nirvana, a certain way of reaching ultimate reality, ultimate peace, ultimate oneness with the universe. And he had his followers, and then guess what happened to him? He died. And he stayed dead. Then Islam comes on the scene, the Muslim religion. Now they acknowledge Jesus, don't believe he's the son of God, but they do believe he was a great prophet from God. But then the other prophet Muhammad comes, and he writes the Quran, and he has his teachings. But Muhammad dies, and guess what? He stayed dead. I could do that with every other world religion. Every one of them. I won't do that, but you get the idea. They would all have the same conclusion. They had a founder, they said some things, they did some things, and they died, and they stayed dead. A cult, any of them, doesn't have to be a formal religion. They had a founder, they influenced people, they did some things, and they died, and they stayed dead. And on and on it goes. But Christianity teaches that our founder, so to speak, our Savior, our Lord, He showed up, He said some things, He did some great things, Yes, he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he lives forever. With that in mind, I want us to look at the author's point from Hebrews this morning. Jesus is a perfect Savior. He's unlike any other person from history that's ever attempted to claim that they can provide all your answers for how to know God, how to be right with God, and how to know that your soul can have an eternal life. All of their answers come short, but Jesus provides the perfect answers. He is the answer, so he's a perfect Savior. What makes him a perfect Savior? It's just going to be two points this morning, but he's going to show us it's because he provides permanent salvation and perfect salvation. Again, I just want us to look at this and have our minds as Christians just just be reminded, just sort of worship mentally and rejoice as we look through this because some of it you're going to say well i've known this but i just want you to think deeply and reflect on what really makes our lord and savior a perfect savior how does he provide us perfect salvation in the writer of hebrews here he's going to transition a little bit and his point this morning he's still on this theme of jesus as a high priest and he's comparing him to the levite priest aaron and his sons as high priest he's still comparing them and he's Not going to mention the name Melchizedek, but if you've been with us for weeks, I owe you an apology, but I'm just here to tell you I'm doing the best I can. Hebrews is deep. It's challenging. 
I know last Sunday I, I left and thought, I, I probably shouldn't have preached that way. Like that was just, it was so deep, there was so much, so I apologize. But that's the nature of the book. I'm doing the best I can. But suffice it to say this, all of that background we looked at about Melchizedek and all those details, if you've been lost, that's okay. This morning it all gets wrapped up in a bow and here's the point. If you've wondered why did he take time to talk about all that stuff from the Old Testament, it really comes down to this. He's going to say, okay, because Jesus was greater than Aaron, greater than the Levite priest, he provides a perfect salvation. He's able to provide permanent, eternal, and perfect salvation for someone's soul beyond what they could ever do. So then, with that in mind, and I apologize, it's not on the screen. I forgot. But if you would, please stand, and I want to read Hebrews 7, chapter or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 23, down to 28. Again, I do apologize. You can listen along. Bible's in the pews. But Hebrews 7, 23 says this, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. That's Jesus. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Pray with me for a moment. God, please help me now to take these truths from Hebrews. And Holy Spirit, it really has to be you. But would you just filter them in such a way? Would you make them come out clear that every heart and mind receives this material? They receive this information from you they receive it as your truth and help us all to be deeply moved and impacted at just simply sitting in wonder and amazement of how perfect and permanent of a salvation you provide jesus god if there's someone here that has questioned their salvation would you help them this morning through this message either be sure that they are one of your children but need to repent of some sin or maybe they've never become one of your children and they need to know how they can have Jesus be their perfect Savior. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Jesus is a perfect Savior. What's the first way he tells us Jesus is a perfect Savior? It's this first point. Jesus saves permanently. That'll be found in verses 23 through 25. Jesus saves permanently. Or we could say it another way. He provides a permanent salvation. I'm going to stress the word permanently quite a bit, so you're probably permanently going to get tired of me saying the word permanently, but we're going to stress it, okay, because that is the idea. Now, how does Jesus save permanently? Because first of all, he has a permanent priesthood. Look at verse 23, and this is his point. The former priests, he says, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. He doesn't say their names, but he's talking about the Old Testament priest, the tribe of Levi, the ones that were the priest after the order of Aaron, his son and their son and so on that were the high priest. He's drawing back on them to say those guys 
had a very important job, a very important thing that they did between God's people, Israel, representing them before the Lord. So we're not discounting and discrediting them. But again, he's saying, but that's on the one hand. And when you compare them to Jesus on the other hand, they don't compare at all. Because those guys, those Levite priests and Aaron's sons after him, they had a limitation to their priesthood. They had a limit to how far they could help people. And it was simply this. They were mortal men and they died. Back in verse 23, because this is when he says, they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. Aaron, ha Aaron was the first high priest, and you can read his story there, and he dies, and his son takes over. Read his story, he gets old, he dies. Aaron's grandson takes over. And you get the idea, on and on this goes, for year after year after year, they serve well, serve faithfully, and they die. Someone else has to take over. That proves, he says, important, yes, but limited as well. Limited in how far they could be a priest, how much they could help as a priest, they were limited simply by death. They had to stop and someone else take over. So that's on the one hand. And he says there was many of them, numerically speaking, many high priests of the Old Testament because they keep having to perpetuate and take over. But now let's look at on the other hand. On the other hand, Jesus lives forever. That then means everything we said about Levi and Aaron and those guys does not apply to Jesus. His life never stopped. It didn't cease. You could say, what about him dying on the cross? Yes, but what happened three days later? He rose again, showing he could conquer death for all eternity. So that's his point, is those guys were prevented by death. Jesus lives on forever. So his priesthood, guess what happens with it? It never stops. As he lives for eternity, his priesthood also carries on for all eternity. He holds his priesthood permanently. That's verse 24. He says, but he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The word hold means sort of like he has that office. He's presently sitting in the seat, so to speak, of the office of high priest. The word hold, mean, it's a present active verb. That just simply means this. He has it today. He doesn't have it in the past only, or he doesn't have it in the future only yet to come one day. He has it right now today, he has had it yesterday. He'll have it tomorrow. He has it all the time. It's a present reality about Jesus that he is a high priest forever. He carries that office permanently, never stops. Again, the word permanent is an interesting word as well. This word is actually a word that sometimes we refer to about God. If you've ever read a book of theology or heard someone when talk trying to sound smart, they'll say that God is immutable immutable. We don't talk like that a lot. That word just simply means this. God does not change. God is not perfect today, and then tomorrow he becomes sinful. God is not all wise today, and then tomorrow he loses all of his knowledge. That's not how God works. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He's unchanging, and that's a great thing because it means God can never know something and not know it. He can never say he loves you and then not love you. He can never say he'll forgive you, but then unforgive you. No, his nature is consistent and unchanging. That same word is sort of loaded here in the English Standard Version. It does use the word permanent, and that's what it means. But the New King James, I think, and probably the King James, they go ahead and use that word unchanging. 
Jesus' priesthood is unchanging, meaning it lasts, it sticks around, it's not here and then gone. It's permanent, it's unchanging. His status as high priest never goes away. Jesus will never be high priest and then all of a sudden commit some sin and lose his office. It's not how it works with Jesus. How is it that Jesus can hold this priesthood forever, though? Again, it's simply this. Jesus doesn't go away. He sticks around forever for all eternity. The phrase in verse 24, he continues forever, simply just means Jesus always exists, always will exist. Jesus can never die and stay dead. He can never not be the Son of God. He can never not be Jesus. He can never just simply stop existing by who he is. That'll never happen. So just think then logically about this. If he then exists forever and will never not exist, will never cease to exist, and he's a high priest, then what does that mean about his priesthood? It also permanently exists just like he does. That's the link he's trying to make. Aaron and those guys were temporary. Their priesthood was limited. Jesus is not temporary. He lives on forever. So then he carries his role as a high priest forever and ever. Now, why, why does this matter? The point he's trying to make is, remember the theme, Jesus is a perfect savior. He, he provides a perfect salvation. Then, but how can he do this? Because Jesus carries on as high priest forever, here's what that means about your salvation. He's able to save you forever. He's able to give you salvation that lasts forever. He's able to give you salvation that is not temporary. It never stops. It's forever. It's eternal. It will never cease. He can never cease to save you. He will always save you for all eternity. That's the next idea in verse 25. Jesus is able to save forever. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and it has this phrase in verse 25. It says, consequently, uh, he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, that phrase, save to the uttermost, is, is interesting. So let's look at it for a moment. The word save simply means to rescue people from danger. It has the tone of rescuing someone from the judgment of God. So what he's saying is Jesus has the capability, he has the ability to save someone. What does he mean by save them? Rescue them from the judgment we're owed because of our sins. God will judge sin. There is a great day of judgment coming, the book of Revelation says, and elsewhere. But Jesus has the ability to rescue someone from God's judgment. Now that sounds ironic. God is the one going to judge people, yet he's the same God that loves people and wants to rescue them from his own judgment. Sounds a little contradictory. It's not if you think about it this way. On the one hand, God is all love. But on the other hand, the Bible says God is just. He's righteous and holy. He's like a judge, a cosmic judge sitting on his judge bench. I'm sorry, I don't know the technical term for where a judge sits, but I'll call it his, his bench there. He's elevated up high and he's sitting there cosmically reigning over the universe and people are paraded before him and he's to render judgment on their case. What's their case he's to consider? Their sinful condition. Should they pay for their sins or not? Now here's the catch about this. For a judge to be a good judge, it's in the name judge, they must render good judgment, justice. They need to fairly weigh the case and issue out a verdict. Is it this way or that way? And we would say, well, the judge is good if they upheld the law. They, they rendered a just verdict in that scenario. God is honestly no different. 
The Bible calls him just. It has a legal term. He is to render people penalty, punishment for their sin. If someone's guilty, then they must be punished. If God just simply gave them a pass and sort of winked at their sin and let them go on into heaven, we could almost say he wasn't a good judge. He must judge people for their sins. So that's the one hand. But what God did with Jesus Christ is he said, okay, I'll send my son and he'll pay their penalty. He'll pay their price. He will carry the penalty for their judgment. And then when someone puts their faith in him, when they stand before God, God looks at them and says, you're you're guilty, I'm banging my gavel, and you're guilty of the penalty for your sins, you deserve punishment. But then he looks at Christ and says, but your punishment has already been paid, paid in full, rendered by Jesus Christ. So they're not, we're not given a pass, it's just Christ has already paid for what the judgment we should incur by God. Then we're allowed into eternal life. Now, with that in mind, then, is here back at this phrase. Jesus, that's how he saves people from God's judgment. There's a loving God, but this loving God is just and must punish people's sins. And Jesus saves people from that judgment because he paid the penalty for those sins himself in his own body. So in that sense, he's able to save us from God's judgment and restore us back to a right relationship with God. Now, the, the word I want to look at is uttermost. This is a very fascinating word. The English Standard Version in the New King James and the King James will probably say the word uttermost. If you have a New American Standard, it will say the word forever. If you have a Christian Standard Bible or a New International Version, it will say the word completely. What's going on here? This is what's happening in the the Greek word there. It is a little difficult to nail down. Let me just simply say this, and it has a point here. This word has two main meanings. It's when you talk about an action that took place. And you have two ways to talk about that action. You can talk about the quality of that action or the quantity. Quality versus quantity. So with this same word here, you could say, I want to speak to about how much the impact of that action was or how long that action will continue to take place. So again, how much or how long? Quality or quantity? Let me say it another way again. It can refer to the extent of an action. That's why some translations use the word complete, full. So they're they're saying here what Jesus did in verse 25, he's able to save fully or completely without any lack. His salvation goes to the limit. It has no limits left to achieve. That's one sense. But the other sense of the word can mean length of time. Jesus saves eternally, forever. He never stops saving people. So it's a very comprehensive word that kind of includes both of those ideas in one word. Let's just say it this way. He says here, consequently, Jesus is able to save fully, completely, and forever. It's all of those things in one. Jesus saves without any lack and without any duration of time. It's, it's forever and ever. Now again, I don't want us to get hung up on how to really understand this word, but I do want you to see how deep what this word's trying to convey of what Jesus has done with our salvation. Jesus saves a person fully and completely. It never has any lack. But, so think of it, he doesn't have more levels of salvation to bring to you. Whatever salvation he's given you, it's 200%. 
There's not another percent of salvation he can bring. There's not a higher level of salvation to get. It's it. It's full. It's complete. But again, I want us to focus on the other aspect. It's permanent. It's forever. It never stops. Jesus does not bring you a temporary salvation. He does not say, I will save you for the next five years or 10 years or 15, or I can save you for this portion of your life and then I can't. That is not at all what he does. It is forever, never ceasing, never stops. Now, in the immediate verses that were in here, I have chosen to translate this word as I want us to think of it more length of time. So, hence my point is he's able to save forever. Because again, the immediate context he's drawing our attention to is comparing Jesus to the Levi priests. They were temporary, they died. Jesus' length of life never stops. It keeps going forever. Therefore, I, I choose to take this to mean what he's trying to get us to see is comparing Jesus to Levi. They were temporary, he's not. Therefore, the salvation he provides is not temporary. It's permanent. It goes on forever and ever. So I, I keep saying this, but I want, to, I want you to think in your head the word permanent is what I really want us to focus on here. Jesus saves permanently. He does not give temporary salvation. It's permanent salvation. He doesn't give incomplete salvation. It's permanent. Permanent means it never ends. We know this. It can also mean, yes, it's complete. There's nothing else to be added to it. It is the way it is because it's exactly the way it needs to be. That's the kind of salvation Jesus brings. So again, verse 25, he says, So consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, or he's able to save forever. Why? Because his life exists forever. He never ceases to exist. He's a priest forever and ever. Therefore, as a priest, the salvation he can bring to someone lasts forever, not temporary. But then there's this question, who does Jesus save? Who does he offer this type of permanent salvation to? Look at verse 25 again. He is able to save to the uttermost those, so now he's going to identify who are these people, those who draw near to God through him. There is an exclusive group here. Jesus does not just universally save people. That's not how it works. Now, I believe, there's different versions of theology, but my version is, I do believe the scriptures teach his salvation is offered to all. That's not what I'm saying is exclusive. What's exclusive is who's in the club, so to speak. How do they receive that salvation? It's offered to everybody, but who gets it? He says here, only those who are through Jesus. They draw near to God through Jesus. We would say it just simply like this. It's those who have placed their personal faith in Jesus as the Savior of their sins believe he rose again from the dead. They've repented of their sins. He's the Lord and Savior of their life. In that sense, he would say you're in Jesus. And through that faith in Jesus, you draw near to God and you're saved. So again, who does Jesus save? Only those who have drawn near to God through faith in him. It's not just an automatic thing is what I'm saying. You have to exercise faith in Christ. Now, how can Jesus do this though? Again, at the verse here, here's how he can do this is the very last phrase. It says, since he uh, always lives to make intercession for them. How does Jesus offer a permanent salvation? Because he's constantly carrying out an action. What's the action he's doing? He's interceding, always, forever interceding for his people. This word intercession means to make an earnest appeal to someone. So it can mean, to say it another way, you have someone that you want to help, 
and there's a higher power, a higher authority over here that they need help with, but you have the better position to go to the person of authority and plead their case. You, you act as their, their mediary, their intercessor. So you represent the other person who needs help. You represent them to the higher authority that can help their case, help their cause. So it, again, it, it means sort of like you get a meeting with someone and you make a petition, not for yourself, for someone else. You make a petition to someone on behalf of someone else to plead their case so they can get some help here. An illustration of this, I'm about to tell on myself, but years and years ago when I was a teenager, I went to visit um, a very good friend of mine in a small town, and I was pulled over by a police officer for failure to fully come to a stop at a stop sign. Now, he gave me a ticket. Um, he didn't really want to hear, hear my appeal, and that's okay. But I still to this day will say to you that I stopped. I know I did. I stopped. I had enough time to stop and look both ways. I was very picky about that as a driver. I believe I stopped. But I didn't argue with him. You know, he's the police officer. I, I took it on the chin, said, okay, sure, you know. On the way to the, the house, it just so happens, just so happens the friend I was going to stay the night with, guess who his dad was? The mayor of the town. So I go to my friend. I say, look, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, abuse my position here as your friend. But I do have a little bit of an issue with this ticket I got because I really don't think I did what he said. But, I mean, if I, if I owe it, fine. I mean, I was trying to be fair about it. And he said, okay, um, hold on a second. And he goes to his dad, and he explains, and then his dad calls me in. He sits us both down, and he says, can I see the ticket? Show him the ticket. He immediately looks at the, the deputy's name, or excuse me, police officer, and he kind of laughed, and, and he said, yes, I know the officer. We call him Barney Fife. And he said he's, he's known to just look for a reason to be able to use his authority. And he said, don't worry, I got it. It's taken care of. I shared that story to just simply make this point from it. My friend acted as my intercessor in that situation. I want you to think about that with Jesus between us and God. I had an issue I needed to approach the mayor, but I didn't really feel good about directly going and trying to say, I'm your son's best friend. You need to help me out here. I didn't feel, I didn't want to do that. That would have been rude, you know, but I go to my friend like, Hey, I have a problem. It's your dad. Like what? I mean, can you just at least let him hear me out? He was my mediator. He went to the father, the mayor, and on my behalf petitioned him, said, you need to hear his case. He may have a point. Listen to him, please. And he did in that sense. He's saying to us, Jesus intercedes for us at the throne of the Father. He acts as our mediator. He pleads our cause. He pleads our case directly to God the Father. Another thing you could think of, maybe you've gotten a job before. Maybe you were qualified for it. That's not the point. We all know how jobs usually work sometimes. It's, it's who you know. You got a job because you had a connection. You had a friend. And you applied for it, and on your behalf, they went to the hiring manager and spoke good about you, and they hired you. Again, it's not the same, but it's a limited way of what he's trying to get us to see. This is what Jesus does for you every single day for all eternity. He's there with God the Father, pleading your case, mediating your cause. Now, what is he exactly mediating? It's not that, that God is angry at us. That, that's not his point. His point, though, is simply... Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father being our priest. He is 
pleading our case before the Father that we are saved for all eternity. Because remember, you and I still sin. As Christians, we still sin. Well, when we sin, the devil's sort of there accusing against us. You know, look how unworthy they are. Look how pitiful they are. But Jesus is there, on the other hand, pleading our case as our high priest, saying, no, 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 they sinned, yes, but I've already paid for that sin. I've already died for that sin. So you can't hold that sin against them. You could think about just in your daily life when you need support, you need help just to live in this life. You can call out and pray to God that he would help you, support you, bring his divine heavenly resources into your problem and situation. How can you have the confidence God hears you? Because Jesus is there mediating your prayers before him, making sure that they're always heard. He assures our salvation. He assures our forgiveness when we sin. He assures that God is always there to support us as a loving father. How? Because again, he's constantly mediating, interceding on our behalf. I want to read you Romans 8.31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So before I go to verse 34, that's his question, his rhetorical question. Who is there that can bring such a charge? If you're here and you're a real child of God, a real Christian, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who can then come and bring us such a, a case against you? Think of a legal case. Could anyone ever bring such a legal case against you in God's court that God says, you know, I think you're right. They, they, they need to be separated from my salvation, from my forgiveness. Paul's answer to this is in verse 34. Who, who is there to condemn? Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who more than that was raised, who's at the right hand of God. And he says this phrase like in Hebrews, he's there interceding for us. So his answer in verse 35 is this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Well, his rhetorical answer is absolutely not. Because Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father interceding for you forever and ever and ever, your salvation, guess how long it lasts? Forever and ever and ever. Even when we sin, we should repent. Yes, that can break our fellowship, but it doesn't break your salvation. Even when you're, you're down in the pits and you're struggling, you don't see a way out and you're calling out to God, he hears you. Why? Because Jesus is there mediating and representing those prayers before him forever. Nothing can separate you from God's salvation, from God's love if you're one of his children. What else does Jesus do? Well, he, he prays for us as our priest. In Luke twenty two thirty two, he told Peter that Satan was after him. And he says, though, in, in verse 32, but I have prayed for you, talking to Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I just throw that out to show you, Jesus prays for his people. And he's there at the right hand of the Father mediating those prayers. It's not to harp on Roman Catholics, but I find it interesting that Roman Catholics have this doctrine that you can pray to Mary, Jesus's earthly mother. And their theory is because that's his mom and sons tend to listen to their mom. They sort of have this doctrine that if you really, really want God to listen to you, then pray to Mary because Mary can sort of bend the ear of Jesus and really make him listen. I just want to share with you that is not at all what Hebrews is saying. Hebrews says, Mary is not important for your prayers. Your prayers are heard directly by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he mediates them to the Father. He's the one that hears those prayers and make sure that God's the Father hears us calling out to him. 
Jesus never stops doing this for you. Because Jesus lives forever, he saves his people permanently. That's the point with his first point. Because Jesus lives forever, he saves his people permanently. The salvation he brings is permanent. The second point, Jesus saves perfectly. So he saves permanently, and now he's going to say he saves perfectly. So I want to focus on the other aspect of salvation Jesus brings. Before we said he saves permanently, now let's look at the other part, which would be completely or fully. So the first aspect of salvation is length of time. It never stops. The second is, but what level is it? Well, it's full. It's complete. There's no higher level of salvation that Jesus needs to bring or offer you. It's already all you need. How can he do this, though? In verse 26, 27, he's going to say, because Jesus is a perfect high priest. So look at verse 26. He says, it, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. My translation says this phrase, it was indeed fitting. I actually prefer the Christian Standard Bible and the New International Version. Let me read you what they say. They do a pretty good job of translating the idea here. They say, for this is the kind of high priest we need. The NIV says, such a high priest truly meets our need. This idea of fitted is he's saying, we had a problem, a situation, and Jesus is the perfect fit for it. He's the perfect kind of priest we needed to save our souls perfectly. Jesus is exactly the Savior we need. He's the only Savior that can do this. How is this the case? First of all, because Jesus had perfect character. This is what made him a perfect high priest. He had perfect character. Look at these lists he gives in verse 26. He says, holy. That means Jesus was pure. He had superior qualities, divine qualities. Then he says he was innocent. That means he's without guilt. He did no evil. He had no fault. Then he says unstained, or your translation may say undefiled. That means he's perfectly pure without any moral blemish. All that to say he had perfect character, sinless character. Jesus was not like those Old Testament priests. They were sinners themselves. He was not. Then he had a perfect status as well. The next phrase, it says he's been exalted, or excuse me, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So his status is this. He was separated from the sinners while he was here on earth. What does he mean? Well, Jesus was among the sinners. Remember, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was so among the sinners, he was sometimes accused of being one. He was among them, but let me say this, he was not one of them. That's his point. He was around sinners, but he was not a sinner. He was among the sinners, but was not one of the sinners. In that sense, he was separated from them. He's perfect and holy. So his status was he could come to earth and serve sinners, minister to sinners, but never became a sinner. He's exalted above the heavens. His status, his level is in the heavens. That, that's simply to say his status is higher than Aaron's ever could have been in the Old Testament. And then the final thing that was perfect about him, he has a perfect sacrifice. He says here in verse 27, Jesus has no need like those high priests, meaning from the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He didn't have a need to do that because he was not a sinner. Those guys had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they could accept a sacrifice for the sins of another sinner. That's not what happened with Jesus as a priest. He did not have to do that, he says. Well, what did he do? 
Well, in verse 27, it says, since he did this, meaning he offered up a sacrifice, but his was different. He offered up a sacrifice once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus didn't bring a goat or a lamb like the Old Testament priest did. He brought himself. His own body was the lamb, so to speak. So here, for us, he's trying to say, Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice. Um, he had no need because he was sinless to offer sacrifice for himself. But what he did do is he offered up himself as the sacrifice. Now, that means his sacrifice is perfect. It has no lack. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find the theme. You had to bring a sacrifice, and you had to bring it again, and again, and again, and you get the idea. He says here, though, Jesus offered himself once for all time, and that was good enough. He didn't have to go and dine on a cross twice, or three times, or a hundred times. He died once, and that was enough, he says, for all eternity, for anyone who would receive him as their Savior. So it is a perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus is sinless then, he's able to provide a perfect sacrifice. So he's sinless, provides a perfect sacrifice. The final thing to see is Jesus is a perfect son. He says in verse 28, The law appoints men, that's the Old Testament law, it appointed men, meaning to be priests, in their weakness. So it appointed men in their weakness as high priests. The word weakness doesn't mean weak as opposed to strong. It means more so limitation, meaning they had a limit to what they could offer and do as a priest. That's, so I want you to think of the word weakness, rather think of the word limit or limitation. So the law appointed mortal men who had limits of what they could do as a high priest, but look at the other side when he talks about Jesus. He says in verse 28, but the word of the oath, meaning God swore an oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word perfect would be unlimited. So on the one hand, the Old Testament priests were limited. Jesus is not limited. But what makes Jesus so perfect? He's not just a perfect priest. Here in verse 28, he says, he's the perfect son of God. God the Father, Father directly appointed God the Son to be high priest forever. And because of this, he could use this word perfect, meaning he is without any weakness. He's without any limitations. And he's completely and fully capable forever and ever and ever to provide salvation for someone. So because Jesus is the perfect son of God, he provides a perfect salvation. So here today in this passage, I wanted us to just see some things. As a Christian, I just want us to sit back and be amazed. I think we can get numb to our terminology in church life. Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. Jesus is the perfect savior. That's all true, but I wanted to walk us through what he wanted us to see this morning, which was to say, yes, but how? How can Jesus provide a perfect salvation? Because he is a permanent priest, which means he provides permanent salvation. Do you realize, as a child of God, you can never be not a child of God? You can never be saved and then unsaved. You can never be saved for just so many years and then you're not. That's not possible. If you're truly saved, if you're truly one of God's children, we're not talking about those that may have professed but really weren't. That's a different story. But those who have truly been redeemed and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you have that salvation forever. You could lose your job, but you can never lose your salvation. You could lose friends, you can never lose your salvation. Never. And the second thing, again, it's perfect. 
You can't say, well, I, if I keep living as a Christian for five or ten more years, then maybe I'll attain a higher level of God being happy with me or salvation. That, no, that's not possible. It doesn't make sense. You have what you have and you have all you need right now, the moment Jesus saved you and entered your heart. That salvation was perfect and it was permanent. There's no more salvation for you to get. Now, there's greater levels of faithfulness we could live, that's sure. But I just want you to understand something. You can't sin and get out there so far in left field that God says, I can't save you anymore. You can't out-sin your salvation. Now, that's not, not, a, not a challenge. Okay, that's not a challenge. It's just a comfort to say. Even when you do mess up, God's always there to forgive if you're one of his children. And again, whatever happens here in this life, it's temporary, it fades, but your salvation is not temporary. It never fades. So I hope and pray, brothers and sisters, that your minds can be guided by those realities, that whatever's happening down here, you have a perfect Savior who's giving you permanent salvation and perfect salvation. And I want to ask, though, in closing, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus as your perfect Savior? You have to. As I said earlier, it's not a given. It's not automatic. You have to receive him through faith. I pray this morning before you leave, you know without a doubt he is your personal, perfect, permanent Savior and that you're saved for all eternity, perfectly saved. If not, you can know him today. You simply admit your sins to God. You confess that you're a sinner that deserves punishment, that deserves to be judged in hell, but you know Jesus died for you in your place. And you say, God, I'm putting my faith in him, though, that my sins were laid on him, and by faith in him I'm forgiven. And he rose again three days later, meaning you can live forever too. I pray that you know that if you do, just rejoice and sit in awe and wonder at how awesome Jesus is, the kind of salvation he's given us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that we have something to talk about called salvation. Not only can we call it salvation, but we can call it eternal, permanent, full and perfect salvation. It has no limits. It has no end. It's ours for all eternity, and it's ours in full. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on that cross to bring us that kind of salvation. Thank you for being raised again from the dead, for conquering death, so we know that because you live forever, we can too. I pray, Lord, everyone here knows you as their Savior, and if they don't, would they feel that conviction today to put their faith in you? In your son's name I pray. Amen.